Like Mark said, we welcome everyone here, and if you're new here this morning, um, my name is Floyd, and I do the majority of the preaching and teaching here at Cornerstone. We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews, we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. This is, of course, known as the Hall of Faith. It's the sort of the, the heroes of faith paraded through. Um, I had intention, had originally planned to take two Sundays to get through chapter 11, and as I am kind of prone to do, I'm going to extend that and take four Sundays to get through chapter 11. So, I told my wife the other day, I don't remember which chapter we were in, but I said, the study in Hebrews that we've been in has been so good for me. I said, I love Jesus more than I did when I started preaching through Hebrews. And, and the way that's affected me on a personal level has just been so helpful and so good. As we've, week after week, you know, we've ended up in, in these, you know, these different sections of Hebrews. There's this sort of overriding theme of the, the writer of Hebrews is, is begging his readers to put their confidence and their hope in Christ and in Christ alone. Some of them were putting their hope in their own good works and maybe we could just be good enough that God would love us and accept us. And, and the writer of Hebrews is writing to them in that context. Hebrews, of course, is written like a sermon. It's written as a sermon. And he's, he's begging them to put their hope in Jesus and in Christ alone. You know, the first nine chapters of Hebrews are a lot of, there's a lot of really good, rich theology in there. You know, like he addresses their previous beliefs and their hope in keeping the Old Testament law, and he's making the argument that Christ is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than the angels. And all of the things that these people had looked to as sources of truth and authority in their lives the writer of Hebrews is saying you need to understand that all of those things, all those people, those figures, were just pointing to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith, and that he and he alone should be the source of our faith and our confidence. We get to chapter 10, and he starts to make some application. We get to chapter 11, where we're going this morning, and we are reminded with the, with the best and the most illustrative of terms that our faith is supposed to be in Christ and Him alone, that it is faith that God is looking for. And where these people were probably being told and had been told all their lives that what God is looking for is really good people. And if you grew up in church, you may have heard that message, like what God is looking for is really good people, good moral people, good law keepers, that's what God wants. I remember, you know, a month or so ago, I talked about what it was like growing up as a kid in church, and the message over and over was, God wants you to be good boys and girls. And so, the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to people who they've really heard that message probably all their lives. And he's saying something that actually goes against that sort of. 
Now, you're saying, oh, so God wants us to be bad. No. What he's saying is that what God is looking for is actually faith. And it's the faith that actually moves the decisions of our lives and therefore our actions. And that where there is faith, that's what God is looking for. That's what pleases him. And, this, and he's been building up to this argument. And so we get to chapter 11 of Hebrews. And I want to read the first three verses, make a few comments, and then read verses 4 to 7 and draw some application from that. So if you have your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 11, um, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. He begins by defining faith for us. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So there's a good working definition for faith. And I'm grateful that he starts out that way, that he just defines it for us, the, the readers. And he says, here, let me explain what faith is. He says it's an assurance that there's things hoped for. So it's forward-looking. It's the conviction. Like it's this deep, settled belief in things that you can't actually see. Verse 2, for by it, meaning faith, the people of old received their commendation. Verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And we'll just hit the pause for just a little bit. Because here's the writer of Hebrews. He defines faith. He points to the fact that the people of old, the people throughout history, had received their commendation from God because of their faith. If you went to Romans, and we're probably going to address that next Sunday, um, you would find it talking about how Abraham received his approval from God based on his faith, not based on his works. And then he goes into and starts with this statement, by faith we understand that everything that you see, the universe, and the things you cannot see, were all created by the spoken word of God. And that the things that you can see were made out of the invisible. That God spoke it into existence. Now some of you, are saying, that's not what they taught us in school. They didn't teach us that God spoke and everything was created. And you're correct about that. That's not what they taught. You know, they say that conviction is born out of struggle. This is one of those issues that I have struggled with some, if I'm being very honest. Um, the, where, where did all of this come from? And here's why I have had some struggle with it. Because the Bible says there were six literal days, 24-hour periods, that God created the world by His spoken word. He spoke, and it was. Genesis 1, first thing the Bible says, by the way. Um, science measures things like the crust of the earth you know, the layers of sediment and so forth, and tells us, well, that, that couldn't have been possible. This happened over a long, long period of time, billions of years, in fact. Layers upon layers with fossils embedded in them. 
And you know, we have really good ways of dating the, the formation of the earth crust based on the, the length of time that it's taking right now. And we can, you know, make, theorize, theorize about the length of time that it took. I've had good friends of mine who are pastors who have come to the conclusion that, you know, Genesis account is not necessarily accurate to what it's saying, and it's not six literal days, that it's, you know, that maybe the length of the day was, you know, a couple billion years or something like that. Um, there's, there's authors and teachers that I actually have high respect for that would kind of lean that direction. And, and I find myself kind of wanting to agree with them. Um, I have encountered people who are very literal six-day creationists who are really abrasive and annoying, and I find myself wanting to disagree with them. And so therefore I've needed to sort of take a step back from the personalities and the arguments and wanting to align myself with a particular person and simply ask the question, what does God's Word teach? And do I or do I not actually believe in the authoritative Word of God? And, and so I have wrestled with this some. And I'll tell you, without apology, but hopefully with lots of humility, that where I, where I actually land is on a, it was with a deep conviction that the world was created in six literal days. That's, that is my conviction. And um, I'm not going to burn relationships over it. I'm not going to get into an argument with you. Um, but it's, believe me, I've had a lot of those conversations. I just recently had somebody that discovered I hold to a six-day literal creation, and they, were, they, they literally said, I am very surprised that you are still believed that way. And um, I was like, well, go ahead and be surprised. Let me, I'm not trying to, I, I don't, yeah, I, I really do want to hold it with humility. Like, like, like I said, I've, there are people who, who believe that, that they're just so abrasive and condescending and... Um, and sometimes I'm like, man, you may win some arguments, but you're not winning any people with this. And um, I'm going to give you, just because I, I do believe this is a critical issue, I'm going to give you my top three reasons that I have sort of held to for why I accept a literal Genesis account of the created world being given to us by the spoken word of God. Um, reason number one, the biblical witness. Every, I put a bunch of references up there. This is maybe half or less of the times that, that somebody in the Bible references creation. Every one of the Bible writers that references creation seems to accept the Genesis account. That matters to me. Good hermeneutics, which is the, the, the discipline or the study of taking God's Word and understanding it. Good, good hermeneutics always takes into account what other places in the Bible say about any given issue. If you're talking about marriage, 
then you should look at everything the Bible says about marriage. If you're talking about money, you should look at everything the Bible says about money. Because we accept that this is the authoritative Word of God and that He did, in fact, inspire it. And so, when you get to places like, for example, Exodus chapter 20, when God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses and He gets to the Fourth Commandment, which is the commandment to rest on the Sabbath day, what does God say to Moses? He says, in six days I created the world, and in the seventh day I rested. Well, that matters to me, that God actually says, I did it in six days. And um, it matters to me that the writer of Hebrews, and I don't even have that reference up here because we just read it, it matters to me that the writer of Hebrews builds his entire argument for faith on this premise that by faith we understand, interestingly enough, he uses the word believe later, but in this context he uses the word understand. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the spoken word of God. So, the Bible witness is one of the issues that I would have to somehow resolve in order to abandon my conviction of the Genesis 1 account. The second reason is that the gospel message rests on death before sin, because of sin. I'm sorry, death because of sin. Here's what I mean by that. And again, I put a bunch of references up. And if you chase these references down, which I, I would love it if you did, what you're going to find is a clear connection between death, suffering, pain, and the presence of sin. So you know the story, Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve sinned, they disobeyed God, and because of their sin, God says, now there will be death on the earth. Well, here's the problem with an old, an old earth view, which is the term that's ten, that like, we tend to sort of divide in old earth versus young earth. Every fossil has one thing in common. Get ready for this. It's dead. You notice that? Every fossil is dead. If our understanding of the age of the universe places death before sin, we now have a gospel problem, not just a creation problem, because the gospel hinges on this. The gospel essentially says that we were born into sin and that we are living in a place where there is death and suffering as a result of sin and that Jesus Christ came and that he died. He paid the penalty for sin on our behalf so that we could receive his righteousness. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins and for his righteousness to be placed on you. That's the good news of the gospel, by the way. Then it's very simple. You can simply trust him. Jesus, I trust you to forgive me of my sins and to give me your righteousness because I believe you paid the penalty for me, which was death. Death is the penalty for sin. So that creates 
sort of a foundational framework issue, and I, and I believe that it's one of the reasons that the notion of a six-day creation is under such attack. Now, I'm not, I'm not actually that critical of science. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to measure and observe the way that things are and make observations and theorize based on that. That's fine. I have no argument with that. I think my... Um, I, I hesitate to use the word contention because that sounds like I'm a contentious person. But, but I think my argument would be to us as believers in Christ to reconsider, at least think about the implications of wherever we land. And that's all I'm really asking of you this morning. You're smart people. I'm asking you to consider it, okay? Consider the implications. The implications of death before sin and what that does to the message of the gospel. It becomes a problem. And you have to, you have to address that somehow if you're going to conclude that the fossil record existed before the fall in the garden. Thirdly, and that is the eternal nature and, the, and power of God's Word. And I think that's the part that the writer of Hebrews is really holding in view in Hebrews 11, verse 3. Because he's talking about how the power of God spoke it into existence. And this, this issue is, I shouldn't say is, can very quickly make our God smaller because we bring Him into our own understanding. Here's what I mean by that. Everything that you and I know is measured by time and space, right? Is God confined by time and space? No. God exists outside of time and space. Time and space exist within God. So, if we contend that God is unable to transcend time and space, in this case, time. We are diminishing who God is. When God created a tree, how many rings did it have on it? You understand what I'm asking? What did God create? You say, well, maybe, no, I don't think he created a tree. I think he created a molecule that bumped into other molecules and eventually turned into a seed, which then turned into a tree. At some point, he transcended time, even if all he did was created a molecule. At some point, or if he created a seed, wherever you start the story, I don't, you know, regardless of where, you know, how you believe, at some point, he had to have transcended time. And it is within his capability and his nature to transcend time. If he transcended time by a week or by a billion years, it's a small thing to him. He can do both. So, he could make a billion-year-old mountain. That's my point. And he could do it in an instant. He could make a hundred-year... Like, I imagine... Let's, you know, go with me here a little bit. Imagination. It's been 10 years since the fall, and Adam needs wood for a fire. So 
he goes out and he cuts a tree down. And he starts to count the rings on it. And he goes back to Eve. He says, Eve, how long, ago, how long ago has it been since we left the garden? She says, it's been 10 years. How long were we in there? A year. I don't, we don't know. I'm speculating. Don't quote me on this. <laughs> a year. He's like, I just cut down a tree and it has 60 rings on it. We must be wrong about how long ago it's been since we were in the garden. Must have been at least, at least 59 years ago. Right? Probably not. We, we look at that speculation, we're like, well, come on, Adam. It's obvious. Like, you were there on day six, at least. You were fashioned, interestingly enough, not by the spoken word, but by, by God fashioning humans, which is unique to all of creation, and then putting within us the breath of life. And we look at that speculation, we're like... We know that didn't happen. We know Adam was smart enough to know that God could create a tree with 50 rings on it and then start adding rings to it with each year. You know, you, you, please tell me that you know that each ring represents a year on a tree. I'm making assumptions here. These are broad assumptions. Okay. Um, point being that the eternal nature and the power of God puts it within his capabilities to create any age part of creation that he chooses to create. He can create trees that are 100 years old in an instant. He can create rocks that are millions of years old in an instant. Now, there's also the issue, which is very um, relevant to this conversation, that Genesis 6 tells us that there was a point where all of human and animal and plant life died with the exception of those who were on the ark, the eight people who were on the ark, and that all of that was covered by water, which would have literally moved millions of metric tons of dirt at a time. And what we know of as a fossil record, the reason that, you know, well drillers pull up chunks of wood from a couple hundred feet down is more likely associated with Genesis 6 and the flood as an explanation for why that happened, as opposed to, you know, again, the theory that an animal dies and oddly doesn't decompose in the thousands of years that it takes to cover it up with layers of stuff. Um, so, one of my pastor's friends said, well, I think there was death before sin, there just wasn't decay. I, you know, obviously you and I were not standing there, so we don't know. Um, that's kind of where faith comes in, isn't it? Like, that's where it becomes a faith issue. And I think the writer of Hebrews wanted us to address even the implications of what we believe, because we are mistaken if we think that the controversy over creation started with Darwin. It didn't. Humans weren't around very long before there was a controversy about where cre how, how we came to be. Most of the controversy throughout ancient times, though, was one religion had their story, another religion had their story. These people said it was our God who, or series of gods or whatever. But the, but the story has always been and always 
presented some controversy within humanity. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing this with that, he's fully aware that not all of humanity has agreed on the origins of creation and so forth. And so if you happen to be talking to somebody that was of a different religious belief in ancient Mesopotamia or somewhere, and they had their story for creation, they would adamantly and dogmatically tell you, this is the way it happened. And the Hebrew man is saying, oh no, we know that our God did that. And he did it by the spoken word. And they're going to stand there and argue over that. And at some point, the best thing they can do is look at each other and say, well, neither of us were there. So you choose to believe what you're going to believe, and I'm going to choose to believe what I choose to believe. And we're not even going to pretend that we can both be right because we can't both be right. It's impossible. And so I have to have a very honest conversation with myself, even in the forming of this, and say, what do I base it on? Because no one can prove with absolute certainty. Well, I was standing there. Now, some of you are close to being old enough to have been there. But you weren't. And so the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, we understand that God spoke it into existence. So I'm going to let that one go. And, um, and, I'm, and like I said, I give you that for consideration. I understand that there's been times when I have said some of these things in a message and somebody has come up afterward and said, I think you are completely wrong in that. And I've, I've never yelled at anybody for doing that. So um, you are allowed to say that. Um, if you want to have a discussion, I'm going to ask you how you would address some of these issues. Um, but we're still going to be friends. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 4 of Hebrews 11. Now we get into some of the, what we call the heroes of faith. Verse 4 of Hebrews 11, he says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. And maybe we should read that again. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In the minutes that we have left, I want to take a look at these three characters, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, that the writer of Hebrews mentions here. 
First of all, Abel. You know the story of Abel. Abel is um, the son of Adam and Eve, and he was the uh, he was a farmer, and he brought a sacrifice to God. It's the first reference that we have of a human bringing and initiating a sacrifice to God. And he brought the best of his um, of the fruits of his labor. And it says that his brother Cain saw that and was jealous. And then we read of the first murder of human history. Cain, it says, stood up, killed Abel. And the writer of Hebrews goes all the way back to that story. And he says, let me, I'm going to tell you about people of faith, but let's start with Abel, he says. So here's Abel. And he says, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. And he's saying this was not just something that Abel thought, Adam, my dad, Adam, will like me better, or my mom, Eve, will like me better, or I can make my brother Cain look bad if I bring a more perfect sacrifice to God. It wasn't, none of those were the motivations for Abel. Abel understood that this Jehovah God was holy and righteous and loving and everything that you want for a God, and then he brings the sacrifice and he brings the best of what he has, and he did it as an act of faith. And this is the first character that the writer of Hebrews points to as an example for you and I, that you and I could bring the best of our sacrifice. We can trust him with our best. That we, we struggle with this, don't we? Because we're like, can I really give everything to God? Can I say, Lord, you can have all of what I have. You can have my finances. You can have my children. You can have my career. You can have my marriage. And what we, what we mean when we say those things is we mean, God, you can take charge of them. You can take control of them. And you can use them for your own purposes because you're now the rightful owner of that. And so when Abel offers the best sacrifice, he's actually looking ahead to the promised one, which was Jesus, who would one day offer his very body as the best sacrifice for the sins of the world. And Abel's action was an action of looking ahead faith. When you and I offer our lives and the best of our lives to Christ, it is because He has already given the best for us. He gave His life for you and I. To restore us to a holy God, us who were dead in our sins, it says in Romans, He restores and He makes alive through the sacrifice of the cross. We sang it this morning, lead me to the cross. Why do we sing songs like that? There's nothing beautiful about the cross, is there? Well, actually, there kind of is. Because at the cross is where we experience the cleansing, the forgiveness of our sins. It is where you and I go to address 
our own brokenness and our own sin. And Christ's sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice of Abel was a sacrifice not just in faith of a God, it was in the promises of God. That this God who had promised a seed that was better and that would restore people back from the fall would one day bring the perfect sacrifice. And so that's the faith of Abel. And then you go to Enoch. And Enoch is this interesting character. You read about him again in Genesis. And Enoch is this character who, there's something very unique about Enoch. It's that he had such a deep and a personal relationship with God that he's one of a couple people in the Bible that it appears as though he did not actually physically die. Like the, I think the Genesis account says something like, he walked with God, and then he just was not. Like, give me more details, please. I don't know. That's all the details it gives. Here's the guy, Enoch, just has such a friendship with God. And he just walks with God. Somebody explained it one time, it's almost as though him and God were walking one day and God said, we're closer to my house than yours, let's just go there. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, that just, maybe that's what happens when you get old enough. Um, you're closer there than you are here. I don't know. What an amazing story, though. Like This, this, this guy who, who had this deep friendship with God, that God had such honor and respect for a person that he just carried him away and took him home. It's in that context that the writer of Hebrews says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Like he's talking about Enoch, and he talks about how that, that God rewards those who seek him. And we, we are sort of familiar with this term that, the Lord rewar that God rewards those who seek him, but we don't often associate it with guys like Enoch who are the friends of God, and there's this closeness and this enjoyment of the presence of God that God smiles on and that God is pleased with. And it says, and he rewards it. And he's talking about this relationship that Enoch has. And do you know that Enoch's friendship with God applies to us? Because you and I can trust God to be our friend. And you know why? Because Jesus said, before he died, he said, you know, I have come so that you could be we could be friends. I'm paraphrasing. He says, you call me your master. He says, but you're going to call me your friend. And if we miss the friendship with God, we can very quickly degenerate into a religion that is full of lots of pressure and do's and don'ts and miss the loving and kind heart of God. And the fact that he is a friend. And the faith of Enoch was not just in his friendship with God. It was forward thinking into a day when the sin issue could be restored, could be dealt with through Christ. And that we could be considered God's friends. That we could walk with him in a trusting relationship. To where you can talk to God about anything that's going on in your life. That you could share with him your deepest sorrows and your greatest joys. 
the stuff that you are so excited about and nobody else seems to understand, you can share with God. And the stuff that you're so sad about that no one else seems to understand, you can share with God. And that's why you see this phrase show up in Hebrews more than any other book of the Bible. You see this phrase show up, draw near, draw near, draw near. And he does this repeatedly. He says, we need to draw near to God. Why? Because he wants us to understand that this is a God who invites us into relationship, that the message of the gospel, the cross, was in order so that we could have a relationship with God and that you and I could walk with him and experience a friendship and a close, intimate relationship with him, which begs the question, do you experience friendship with God? Would you ever describe Jesus as your friend? And if not, why not? Have you ever described Jesus to somebody else as, he's my friend? Like the same terms that we would use for somebody that we would call or that we would say, can we get together for coffee because we, I want to talk about some things. Or let's just be together for the sake of enjoying being together. We're not reading our Bibles closely enough, by the way. Like in the Gospels, we see a Jesus who just spent time with his disciples. He didn't teach them all the time. They spent a lot of hours just being together. Stuff that's not recorded. We call it the white spaces. Those spaces between the words that represent days and hours. Lots and lots of them. What were they doing? They were just together. Because they were friends. They were genuinely were friends. And they enjoyed each other's company. Can you describe Jesus as your friend? Do you trust him? Because the deeper the friendship, the deeper the trust. We don't share our secrets with people we don't trust, by the way. I don't, and neither should you. We share the deepest things of our lives with the ones that we trust the most. And if we're not enjoying the friendship that God intended with Jesus, it's a trust issue. It's a faith issue. Enoch had such a deep and trusting faith that he just enjoyed the relationship with God. He enjoyed him as a friend. The third character that he points to is Noah. And he talks about this obedience of Noah and how Noah builds an ark based on God just telling him. He says he, says he was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. So here's God coming along and, Noah, I need you to build an ark. And he starts giving him all the dimensions. And, you know, Noah, of course, is, th this is so unfamiliar to him. And it talks about, like, as Noah is building an ark, people were mocking him. And people were making fun of a guy who would build a boat on dry land without any plans to get it to water. Like, Noah, how are you going to get the boat to the lake? He's like, actually the lake's coming to me. The water's coming my direction. I'm just going to get on the boat. 
And people are like, you're crazy. And Noah just keeps building his ark. Because there's this deep faith and this trust and this confidence in God that Noah has that anything God asked of him, he didn't need to get all the details, and he didn't need to understand exactly how all of it was going to happen. He just obeyed him. He just took him at his word, and he's like, okay, all right, okay, I, obey, I, I can obey you, God. Um, we can trust the plan of God without question, even though we don't understand it. And I wonder how many times in my life have I missed or sort of hijacked something that God wanted to do because I'm like, well, but that could go horrible. I don't want to just obey because I'm going to look like a weirdo. I don't want to say that because people are going to be like, no, you're crazy. I don't want to stake my life on the promises of God and on the truths of His Word in a culture that has said, you can't trust that. And yet, like Noah, we don't have to know all the details, do we? You can just obey. If you read something in the Word of God that confronts you and that disagrees with you, you're reading it the right way. If it never disagrees with you, you're reading it the wrong way. It's intended to confront. And we get so uncomfortable because we're such little egomaniacs with anybody daring to disagree with us, particularly God, because we live in a culture that largely worships at the altar of self-discovery. You notice that? We, we live in a culture that largely worships at the altar of self-discovery. Me and my feelings are of the utmost importance, and they are the standard of truth. And it's one of the reasons we avoid the Word. We avoid digging in it. We even avoid the gospel because that's the offensive part of the gospel, is that we're not the center of the universe. We're not the essence of reality. Christ is. Read Colossians 1. In Him and for Him all things consist, are created, and are being held together. Like this very unambiguous language that, it, that the center of all reality is Jesus Christ. Not me. And so, this religion of self-discovery and self-worship, don't ever make me feel bad, is the antithesis of faith. It erodes our faith. Because we measure God by how He makes me feel, which then makes us the God. And as we go through Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to see people who turn that the other direction around. And they measured themselves based on how they aligned to the heart of God and the truths of God. And it was that faith that God commends. They didn't have answers. Noah didn't know what was going to happen. 
Enoch didn't know how the friendship with God was going to go. Abel didn't understand all of, the, all of the reasons that he was offering a sacrifice. You know, all three of these, by the way, are arrows pointing to Jesus. You know, First Peter talks about that ark being a picture of salvation. That, that the ark of Noah was, yes, I believe there was a physical, literal ark. I actually believe that the earth was one time, at one point, covered by an entire flood. I just recently heard a guy on a podcast um, talking about, hey, he says, there is so much evidence that North America was underwater at some point that my theory is that a meteor hit the Gulf of Mexico and covered North America with water at some point because we have fish fossils so far above sea level. And I'm like, hang on a minute. <laughs> Here it says. <laughs> um, but so I, I believe that there was a physical ark, but that ark was actually a picture of salvation. It was a picture of the opportunity for you and I, like Noah, to stake our lives and our eternal destinies on the provision of God and to find safety in His salvation. And that was the picture that Peter draws from in Noah's ark, and it speaks to you and I as well. And again, begs the question, are you in the ark of salvation? Have you trusted the provision of God through Christ for the salvation of your soul? Sermon in a sentence. The God who created us rewards our faith with himself. And that's what we're going to see over and over throughout this chapter 11 of Hebrews is that this creator God, the intelligent designer, the one who created and fashioned you and I, and, he, and like I mentioned a few minutes ago, he didn't actually create humans by the spoken word. He actually formed humans, breathed into us the breath of life. You don't think he has something special planned for humans? He does. That God created us, and he desires a relationship with us, and he rewards our faith. A few study questions if you want to take it a little deeper. Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up, I want to bring it to a close. As we close, I'm aware of the fact that the majority of you here can think of a, of a time in your life when you wrestled through the issue of salvation. Like, what do I do with my sin issue? And for many of you, most of you, you, can, you know of a time when you put your faith in God for the forgiveness of your sins, when you trusted Him, and you said, I believe in the, in the work of Jesus on the cross. Some of you, there may be some of you here, I never assume that everyone has, has, do that. If you're, has done that. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted Him, and pray that simple prayer, Lord, I ask you for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe you died for my sins. I invite you to do that this morning. But for most of us, our faith comes into some very daily issues, doesn't it? Like Abel, we kind of struggle with the sacrifice. Can I trust God with anything in my life? Can I trust him with the stuff that's the most precious? What if he takes it away? 
Can he handle it better than I can? Or like Enoch, can I trust him to just be my friend? Can I just enjoy his presence? Or like Noah, can he ask anything of me? These are very real daily issues for all of us. Would you stand with me? Again, as we just do, I want to give you a moment to do some reflecting. I invite you, if you would like to, either to receive Christ or just to address something that you would like to address before God. I invite you, if you want to, to come up front and you can pray. You can just stand here and pray. Somebody would be available to pray with you. Um, but I think we need, to, we need to honestly ask ourselves some questions. Can I describe Jesus as my friend? Do I have that kind of faith? And if not, what do I do with that? I think you turn right back to this passage where it says that he rewards those who seek him, and the next thing you do is you seek him. It's not that simple, or it's not that complicated, is it? You seek him. Lord, I seek you. I'm just going to give you a few moments. And just where you're at, the quietness of the moment. What would you want to seek God for in your personal faith? Lord, we seek you this morning because you say that you reward those who seek you. God, there are those here this morning who, who are wrestling with just trusting you with their family, their finances, their career, their future, reputation, whatever it is. It's, we struggle to trust. So help us, Lord. God, maybe, um, maybe someone's here this morning and just never felt that intimacy, the friendship with you. So God, I, I do pray that you would do a work internally and, and work in our hearts. Um, give us a, a, just a sweet sense of your presence. We want to know you as our friend. God, maybe we're struggling to obey you know what we need to do, having a hard time just following through. Give us the faith of Noah to obey. Just simple obedience. Whatever area of need that we have, God, it's a faith issue. And so strengthen our faith. And like the man that you talked to when you were here, who said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, that's kind of where we're at sometimes believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. Help me to have stronger faith. All for the glory of your name.